we have been doing a several sub, uh, mini-series on each one of the stained glass windows that begins with the story of creation and goes around and ends with the end-time events. And we are on the last pane of win windows on the last day events. We've already encouraged you, and hopefully you will do this, that you, uh, if you can't be to hear every message, that you'll go to our website so you can hear all the messages on the end-time events. I want to begin by asking you to use your imagination with me. I want you to imagine that you are in a workplace. Perhaps not your workplace, but it's a workplace that is, doesn't have a bunch of separate rooms where each one is in their own office. But it's a workplace in which everybody's in kind of a cubicle where the, the partition only goes so high. And you see each other, and, and it's kind of a, a workplace that's very, very bustling, and people are walking uh, all around, and, and, and they greet each other, and they see each other. And the boss calls a meeting of everyone, and he's got a big smile on his face. And your boss says, I've got some good news. I have a distant relative who lives in a country a ways away, a third world country, and they live in a village where there's been some, some really bad illnesses. It's almost like, like, like a plague. They have very high fevers, there's dysentery, there's very, a lot of pain in their joints, and, and people in their village have been dying left and right. And, and this distant relative of mine, they're coming over and uh, we're going to give them a job so they can get started here. Now, they do have a few symptoms of the disease, but they've been given some new medication, some, some experimental drug that, that we think is going to work. And so we, I just want you to welcome them with open arms when they come to work here. How open would your arms be? Let's be honest. How many of you would feel real safe working in that environment? I don't see a single hand. Keep that parable in mind, please. I want to begin with just sharing a couple texts that Jesus gave couple texts that Jesus gave. Those texts, I think I left my remote over there, Steve, yeah. Is it right there? Nope, okay. There it is, I found it. Sorry, should have gotten it out beforehand. Those texts are important ones. They're very familiar ones. John 14, 1 to 3, before he died, Jesus told his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and that means if I go and I am going to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that I, where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back, and I want to take you back to this place I prepared so we can be together. John 5, 26 to 29. For as the Father has life in himself, 
So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who, who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I, I want you to notice that Jesus mentions two resurrections. The resurrection of life and the resurrection to judgment. Now, there are those who believe that, that those resurrections happen at the same time. But what does the Bible say about that? Another very familiar passage, Matthew 25. Matthew 25, it's page 831 in your pew Bible. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 30 uh, to 20 31 to 34 in verse 46 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He goes on and talks about how we're to treat each other while we wait. And then at the end of talking about those who didn't treat each other well, he says in verse 46, he says, And those, referring to the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This morning we're going to look at a topic that isn't mentioned a whole lot in the Bible. In fact, it's really found specifically in only one place, Revelation chapter 20. It's called the teaching of the thousand years or the teaching of the millennium. The word millennium is not in the Bible, it simply means a thousand years. We're going to be looking at it you will discover that there are some places in the Old Testament where it's almost like a double prophecy where, where God prophesies against some of Israel's enemies and against Israel itself before it goes into captivity into Babylon. And the words it uses are, are very similar to the words that are used describing the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 4 verses 22 to 26 is one of those places. Revelation 4, or Jeremiah 4, verses 22 to 26. My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in evil doing. But how to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. If you want to look up another passage later, you could look up Isaiah chapter 24. It uses much of the same language to refer to what it's going to be like at the time during the millennium. At least it seems that, that there is a link. And so, what is this millennium that's spoken of in Revelation 
chapter 20. And you could open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. It's right towards the back. Revelation chapter 20, page 1039 and 1040. We're going to be looking at chapter 19 too. But before we do, let me just share with you some of the views about the millennium that, that Christians have held through the years. Early on in the first century or so, a few people talked about it, but there wasn't much teaching on the millennium. And, and most of the teaching, that there were some early church fathers who taught that before the millennium took place, Jesus would come, and, and they were, have become known as premillennials, Jesus coming before the millennium. But they believed that the thousand years would take place on this earth and that Jesus would be here on this earth. Another group grew up that are referred to as amillennials. They're not worried about whether, when Jesus is coming or not. And Augustine was the one who promoted this view for the most part. And, and what, he said, what they, they believe is that <clears throat> the thousand years of Revelation 20 is a mere figurative number indicating the whole period between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And in this view, Christ already reigns and rules from heaven through the church. And he's bringing people into the kingdom of God through them. There's another group called post-millennials. They believe that Jesus sets up a thousand-year period of peace on earth and gives people a chance and an opportunity for, for people to accept God and, and for the wicked to accept God. And, and then at the end of that thousand years, Jesus returns completely. More often than that, there's actually two views. There's one that Jesus comes and is on the earth, but most of the time it's that Jesus is not on the earth, but it's up to the church to enact laws and to do things and to bring about God's kingdom on this earth. There's a fourth one, and it's called dispensational premillennialists. And these are the, the people who believe in the secret rapture and believe that his return precedes the millennium, but it first happens in two stages. There's the secret rapture of the church, there's seven years during which the Jews have a, a chance to, to, to accept Christ as the Messiah when temple sacrifices will be reenacted. And then Jesus sets up an earthly kingdom on this earth for a thousand years in which people have another chance. And, and there's various variations on that. Seventh-day Adventists have a premillennialist understanding of the millennium. We believe Jesus comes and then there's the millennium. But we believe it happens in heaven and on earth, but the saints are in heaven, and we'll look at that and we'll see why we believe that in a moment. What's interesting, I already mentioned that the word millennium is not in the passage. What is interesting is that in this highly symbolic book of Revelation, where there's all kinds of prophetic times mentioned and where we're not just Adventists, but many, many Christians believe that that, that prophetic time is is a day for a year. We, we say, wait a minute, why do we suddenly switch to a thousand years is a thousand years? If you took a day for a year principle for this time period, it would be 360,000 years. And I think we don't want it to be that long. We don't want to be thinking about what we're supposed to do during that time period for 360,000 years. I don't. Do you? As I was sitting on the front, yeah, I, I, Ellen White just mentions the thousand years, quoting from the, the book itself. 
I, I searched all week long trying to find where we get the idea that it's a literal thousand years in a highly symbolic book. I couldn't find anything. I, I find it interesting that anyone who believes this is a time period believes it's just 1,000 literal years. And as I was sitting on the front pew, the, the thought kind of came to me. Everywhere prophetic time is mentioned, it's either mentioned as days or times. It's never referred to as years. And maybe that's our way out. I don't know. I tend to believe it's a literal thousand years. If we get to heaven and it's longer, 70 years makes a thousand years look a long time. 360,000 years, I mean, sorry, eternity makes 360,000 years look very short. Whatever it is, it's not that important to discover how long it is as it is to know why it is there. Do you follow me? Why it's there. I firmly believe that what we believe in the Seventh-day Adventist Church about this thousand-year period has an important bearing on the safety and security of the universe forever. Let me explain, and please follow along with me. Let's look at Revelation 19 for a moment. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 5. It's basically what the great multitude in heaven are crying out, salvation belongs to God, and hallelujah. And it's, it's praising God and worshiping him, saying that he is our God, and everyone, both small and great, should fear him. Then in verse 6, there's an announcement of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The announcement that God is coming back for his people, and he is going to redeem them. That goes through verse 10. From verse 11 on in Revelation 19 is the story of the other supper that we don't like to talk about much. It's the great supper of God in which the wicked are destroyed, and then uh, they are lay there and and the destruction is total and complete. And then, and then in verse 21, it says they're slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of, of Jesus who come, is, rides on a white horse. And it says that uh, they're the one sitting on the horse and all the birds gorge on their flesh. Not a pretty picture. But then comes chapter 20, verse 1. And I want to remind you of something that's very prominent in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation does not start out from point A to point B to point C to point D and so on. It starts out from point A to point D, goes back to point A, point 2, fills in some more details to point E, point 3. Then it goes back to, to C, point 1, and goes to G, point 4, and fills in more details. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's called recapitulation or reiteration. It repeats what it's already done and then adds more details and fills in the blanks. And so we have in chapter 19 the story of, of uh, the picture of Jesus coming and he's going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's going to come for the redeemed. He's also going to have the great supper and he's going to, the wicked are going to be destroyed. And then in Revelation 20 he goes back to the time when the redeemed are going to be saved. And he gives a few more details. You follow me so far? I want you to notice, let's just look at the first three verses 
the first three verses of Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit or the abyss and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he would be released a little while. So the first three verses talks about what's going to happen to Satan at the beginning of the thousand years and during the thousand years. The next section talks about what's going to happen to the redeemed. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So apparently they came to life at the beginning of the thousand years. The rest of the dead, which would be the wicked, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The next part of this chapter talks about what's going to happen to the wicked at the end of the thousand years. And I'm going to just paraphrase it here. Satan will be released from his prison because he's been there by himself. He will come out to deceive the, the people who have been resurrected, who have been wicked. He will come out to deceive them. And he will, when he comes out to deceive them, he gets them to march up against the holy city to try and, and, and win a battle he cannot win. And then he and the beast and the false prophet and the wicked are thrown into the fire. And then comes another section that talks about what happens to the wicked and how they will face their judgment and the records of recordings of their deeds come up and they will see why they have been lost. And then it says they experience the second death. Let's maybe help you put it all together in case you haven't been able to. During the thousand years, it begins with the first coming of Christ, with Jesus Christ, not his first coming, but the second coming of Jesus. The righteous dead, according to Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, the righteous dead are raised to life. The righteous living are then raptured, and that's a good word. It simply means being caught up. It's not a secret rapture. They are caught up, okay? When you're talking to people who say, do you believe in the rapture? You can say yes. I just don't believe in a secret rapture. They're caught up. And they meet those who are dead and are now alive. They meet them on the way up and they go up in the air. The wicked who are living die and the dead who are dead remain dead. Okay? They're not resurrected at this point. According to Revelation 20, during the thousand years, it says Satan is bound by a chain. How big a chain do you think it would take to literally bind a powerful being like Satan? We've often taught, and it's, I think it's a good way of saying it, where he's going to be bound by circumstances. And, and you, you've used something 
very similar when you've, someone's asked you to do something, you say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. My hands are tied. And they don't look at your hands to see where the rope is. They understand the circumstances are preventing you from doing that which they're asking you to do, right? Satan is bowed, and he's placed in the, the abyss. Now, now, most Christians think that this can't be referring to the earth because the abyss is where Satan is and where hell is. But I just want to point out to you what the word abyss means in the original languages. It means a prison for the disobedient or the realm of the dead. That's all it means, the realm of the dead. A prison for disobedience. Nothing in Revelation 20 talks about there being any fire coming up until after the thousand years is over. He's bound by circumstances. This may be his greatest punishment. He has no one to tempt. He has no one to deceive. He has no one to win on his side. Plus, he gets to look at all the effects of sin that he has created. And it's total destruction. I don't know about you, but one of the ways my parents punished me from time to time, there were basically two ways I got punished. One was my... Back in the days when you didn't get in trouble for this, my dad would, would spank me using his belt. Another way I got punished for lesser crimes, depending on, I thought the other, others weren't so bad, but that's another whole story. But for lesser crimes, I would have to go stand in the corner. And depending on that crime, it could be anywhere from 10 minutes to half an hour. I hated standing in the corner for half an hour. I think I would rather have had maybe a little bit of the belt put on my, on my posterior than stand there for half an hour. Do you get my point? The devil's biggest punishment is being there with no one to deceive and to see the results of what he's done. Let's go back to what happens during the thousand years. The second thing that happens it says that the saints will judge. The saints will judge. That causes some people some issues. What do you mean, saints? I thought God is the judge. Adventists have been accused of being, talking about something that's not biblical. Let me show you how biblical that is. 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. Paul's writing about the fact that, that certain members of the church in Corinth were, were taking their fellow believers to, 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 to the law court and suing them. And he's telling them they shouldn't do that because it's, it's airing the church's dirty laundry in front of the unbelievers. It's not making the church look good. It's not making God look good. And so he uses the argument of the fact he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So Paul was very clear that we will be doing some judging of some kind. Why would we need to do that? Why would we need to do that? Before I get into that, Let's, let's go back and let's look at what happens at the end of the thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem descends. Jesus is coming the third time. The wicked are raised to life. 
Satan is loosed from his prison. He tries to get the, the wicked to take and storm the holy city. All then acknowledge that God is God and he's been holy and just. And then Satan and the wicked and sin are destroyed forever. Okay? Here's the point I want you to know. Most Christians do not believe the last statement. Most Christians believe that hell burns forever and ever, and sin goes on and on and on. And God never destroys sin completely. I'm glad I know that sin does not exist forever. In any form. How, but the question becomes, how does God make it possible so that sin does not rear its ugly head again? I want you to think back to the story I told you at the beginning. If you think about it, God bringing people who have sinned, and we have, God be bringing people who have sinned into heaven the perfection of heaven could be an issue, don't you think? Why would you bring that up here? If you would be afraid of having someone with a few germs come to your workplace, how do you think the universe might feel about bringing the germ of sin around? I think it's a legitimate question. And to take care of that, God's plan for judgment includes, includes a couple of things, actually three. The first is the pre-advent judgment, which we believe happened in 1844. Again, if you want to read that and study that more, I recommend John Anderson's book, The Three Angels, One Message. But I want you to notice that pre-advent judgment is for the benefit of unfallen beings. Before he takes people who have been sinners to heaven... They get to look and see and understand that everyone who is coming to heaven have come, are coming there because they've accepted the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are coming because they've allowed God to transform and change them. They are able to be there because they have rejected Satan in his ways and they have committed their lives completely to Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are safe to save. The unfallen beings in heaven will see that God is just and justifier and he is vindicated in his plan to save sinful human beings. Then there's the thousand years, and that's for the benefit of the saints. They too will see that God is righteous because it says in Re Revelation chapter 20 that we will be judges and that books will be opened. Books will be opened. I want you to notice, we will be there as judges. Why will we need to judge? I've used this before, and I, I, I want you to think it through. Let's suppose the most, one of the best moral people you have ever met, one of the persons who has been so religious all their lives, you look around heaven and they're not there. What would you think? Why? 
Some say, we're not going to question God at that point. Listen, Lucifer questioned God when sin had never existed. Or suppose there's someone who was the most vile person you had ever met. Is there? What would you say? Imagine what the disciples, if they didn't know the rest of the story, imagine how surprised if they had died before the crucifixion, how surprised they would be to see that Judas was not there. Or imagine the person who'd been the, re, the recipient of the, the thief on the cross who accepted Jesus. Imagine how surprised they'd be to learn that they're there. Why? What God is doing is he is being as transparent as he possibly can be. He's opening the book so that all can see that everyone who deserved to be saved is saved. And everyone who refused to be lost is lost. And we, are, we only deserve to be saved because of Jesus and not because of who we are. We, are only, we only deserve to be saved because of Jesus. It's that true it's that right and those who are lost will be lost because they refused and then we get into all the questions that people sometimes ask well wait a minute pastor gary what about those who didn't have a chance for salvation we are going to see how god worked in the lives of every single person and in the end we will proclaim that he is just and he is fair he is just and he is fair you see, I believe the millennium connected with, and if you go back and study the sanctuary service, connected with the, the pre-advent judgment, enables then at the end of time, the wicked will see that God has been fair too. And even at that point, they'll all bow and say, God is righteous and holy. It's a vindication of God. It enables the universe to be safe forever. We have a message to proclaim. And that message is that God is able to save anyone who will trust in Him. We have a message to proclaim, and that's that one day all the evil and wickedness that we know in this world will be done away with forever. And do you know when God wipes away the tears from the eyes of the saved? It's not during the thousand years, it's not until the thousand years are over and we've gone through this process. It's then that he wipes away tears from our eyes. Because sin will be no more. I want to conclude with the last few closing statements from the book, from the book Great Controversy. I, I just love the way she describes it. And the years of eternity as they roll will bring richer and still more glorious revelations of God and of Christ. As knowledge is progressive, so will love, reverence, and happiness increase. The more men learn of God, the greater will be their admiration of his character. As Jesus opens before them the riches of the amazing achievements, achievements in the great controversy with Satan, the hearts of the ransom thrill with more fervent devotion and with more rapturous joy. They sweep the harps of gold, and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of voices unite. Don't you love the numbers there? Thousands upon thousands. We sometimes have this view of heaven as only a few will be there. Thousands 
unite to swell the mighty chorus of praise. The great controversy has ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their on-shadow beauty and perfect joy declare, and would you read that la those last three words with me? Declare that God is love. What a day that will be. As I was reading it, a, a, a side thought came to my mind. I'm going to share it. Ellen White describes space as being illimitable. I wonder what Hubble telescope she used. Get my point? Friends, I am so glad that God has promised that sin will be gone forever. And there will be a day when we will be growing and learning, and the thing we'll be learning the most is having greater and greater insight into the God whose character is love. I can't wait. Can you? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God whose power is more powerful than sin. Thank you that you are the God whose holiness and whose mercy and compassion kissed at the cross. Thank you that you are the God who longs to redeem us and to bring us home to be with you. May that day be soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder that...